0: Welcome to the August 17th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic DeSudi. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on how the City of Boulder may need to respond to the the success of its sugary drink tax. The excise tax has brought in $5.2 million so far, which is more than the projected $3.8 million. The Boulder City Council must now either refund the overage or ask voters to keep the excess revenue. Patty Calhoun from Westward. (laughs) we were mocking the whole idea of a a sugary tax around this table, which is kind of our thing to do, for a long time. Now they've brought in even more money than they thought. Do you think (laughs) a refund is in the future, or is Boulder going to find a way to get the money back?
1: I think Boulder will wind up keeping the money because it's Boulder and people will want them to keep it. But the most interesting thing about this is clearly this syntax is not working the way they thought it would. It's supposed to discourage you from this improper Boulder behavior. But apparently more people than ever are buying sugary drinks in Boulder, perhaps just to defy authority. (laughs)
0: To defy defy authority indeed. In fact, speaking of defying authority, David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Boulder, you uh, are... David, you are from Boulder. You live there now. Uh, You're right there in the middle of it. What's your thought and what should happen?
2: Oh, you would... If you wanted to... Search the whole state over and find nine of the most prejudiced narrow minded intolerant people you you could hardly do better uh, than starting at the boulder city council and your your search would be complete uh, they They live to persecute people who are different uh, they 're extremely intolerant and uh, and prejudiced uh, and it turns out that too many people in Boulder are not going along as Patty said with their uh, culture war against people who choose to drink sugary drinks. Uh, so it looks like they'll end up getting more loot in the long run. So it's a, a win-win situation, I guess, from their point of view.
0: Always middle-of-the-road opinions for me, David. I appreciate that. Susan Green, editor of the Colorado Independent, joins us. Thank you very much for being here, Susan. Uh, Boulder always gives us great things to talk about. When you see about, uh, the the overage and excise tax here, do you think that it's probably bound for more things in Boulder? Will, the, will Boulder rights give it back to the city?
3: Uh, Well, to be clear, this amounts to $1.4 million, which barely buys a house um, in Boulder. I mean, the average house in Boulder costs a million dollars, a little bit over that. So it's not like we're talking about a huge load in in Boulder's context, number one. Number two, I don't use the term nanny state very often, and when I do, it kind of just makes me feel like, you know, I've been somehow... uh, overtaken by John Caldera, but this is (laughs) the craziest nanny tax ever, and um, I don't agree really with David about pretty much anything, including the city council, but I do think this is a pretty boneheaded tax.
0: Somewhere, John Caldera is so very happy right now. Yeah. So you made him a very happy person. <laughs> Ross Kaminsky rounds up the panel, uh, talk show host on 630 KHOW every morning. Be sure to check him
4: out. Uh, Ross, what do you think? Just uh, more of the same that we can expect from Boulder? Yeah, well, I think they'll definitely keep the money, and I'm glad you've been overtaken at least for a moment by John, and I'll do my part to hold up. John's end of the deal. I'm sure Dave will, too. And I was actually going to mention the housing price thing because, really, in a town where the average home price is a million dollars, it probably would be silly to think that they would stop buying their big gulps or soda or whatever for an extra few cents a can. Who's going to care in a town like Boulder?
0: Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court on Tuesday accusing state officials of religious hostility. The suit followed a discrimination complaint based on the shop's refusal to bake a cake for a celebration of a gender transition. The suit asks for $100,000 and permanent injunctions from future anti-discrimination suits. Uh, Patty, uh, Jack Phillips has been the news nationally, I think in some cases internationally for the case with the Supreme Court that uh, really for all intents and purposes he won. This is a different complaint and now he's on the attack of suing the state of Colorado. Uh, A couple different angles here. Take your pick.
1: Well, if I were at the Colorado Civil Rights Division, I would have wept the day this complaint came in. And I'm guessing they probably did because it's a win-win for the transgender lawyer who filed it, uh, who filed the complaint, Autumn Scardino, because she wanted a transgender cake. Pink on the inside, I think, blue on the outside. Mm -hmm. Asked for it the day the Supreme Court decision came down. Jack Phillips, Masterpiece Bakery, said no. Um, They're winning incredible amounts of publicity. They've got a big campaign going. But the state of Colorado, which has to investigate every complaint, which I happen to know because they've investigated complaints against me and Westward for running ads for ladies' nights, just being the vehicle uh, of it. And uh, fortunately, I would say they came down on the right side on that one. But they have to look into the complaints. I think they did a fairly careful job on this. But it was they were going to lose no matter how they came down. They just must have wept to see this complaint came in, come in because they know it's opening it up all over again. <clears throat>
0: David, uh, as usual, you are our esteemed lawyer at the table. There are a couple different angles here. I guess uh, the one I'm most interested in, but take uh, your pick about where you want to go, is the idea of suing to get permanent injunctions from future anti-discrimination suits. I I, I get, I guess, the point, but that seems like a get-out-of-jail-free card that wouldn't be handed out very freely. I'm not the lawyer. You are. What do you think?
2: It's an, extra- <clears throat> it's an extraordinary remedy, but extraordinary remedies are appropriate when there is extraordinary defiance of a United States Supreme Court decision on civil rights. The in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the U.S. Supreme Court, all nine justices with different takes on that particular issue, but they all agreed: you can never force someone to express a particular message that person doesn't want to express. So where the question is, well, it's just a generic wedding cake, is that an expression or not? Here there's no dispute about it. The lawyer uh, who started harassing Masterpiece Cake Shop on the day the Supreme Court decision was announced first asked them to make a cake with Satan on it, fondling a large male sexual organ. And this goes on with a number of abusive requests to convey a particular message. And obviously Masterpiece Cake Shop would not say, oh, we'd be happy to make a satanic cake uh, for someone who's a heterosexual, but not for someone who's transgender. They wouldn't make that cake for anyone. And so then this next complaint is that the lawyer asks for a cake to celebrate the sex change operation. And the Masterpiece Cake Shop would not make a cake conveying that message, and it doesn't matter who the customer is, whether it's someone who had a sex change operation, or it's a cake to celebrate someone else's, or whatever. The Civil Rights Division went far beyond investigating, which, as Patty said, it has a duty to do. It issued a probable cause finding against Jack Phillips in this case of obvious mean-spirited harassment of his civil rights, and the commission and the division are on the wrong side of a unanimous Supreme Court. Susan, the
0: commission serves a very important point uh, for Colorado. We've had uh, a long history as a state of actual problems and uh, discrimination to solve. But I can also see here that there's, I guess there's enough wiggle room here that's going to get a little messy. Uh, when you look at all different sides of this, what, what kind of things come to your mind?
3: Well, what comes to mind is that the Supreme Court... Yes, decided in Jack Phillips' favor in, in that case, but it left broad areas of religious um, uh, liberties and the constitutionality of this issue open. I mean, this is by no means decided, right? The commission has a job to do, and to somehow make this extraordinary exception for Jack Phillips almost um, dissolves or makes irrelevant its mission. I mean, you, you, that's a slippery slope. Once you let someone go, Uh, you know you've got to let everybody go and frankly the hundred thousand dollars he's seeking is probably nothing compared to what the state spends litigating this case. That said, Alliance Defending Freedom which is the sort of right wing conservative Christian legal juggernaut that is defending Jack this, this suit is probably the best thing that ever happened to them because they get to keep sending Chinese water torture emails uh, about Jack and how persecuted he is. I mean, these re- these emails, and I get them, uh, are, they, they liken overtly and sort of more subtly Jack Phillips to Jesus, right? You know, they're on a crusade, the, the state is on a crusade to crush him. They, um, you know, the state despises his religious views. He's being persecuted. You know, there's so much rhetoric and so much money going into the people who are defending him here. It keeps it in the news. And I think, frankly, because there aren't that many cases in the country like this, um, they're thrilled. And I, I want to respond to something David just said. Deriding the customer, the transgender woman's legal prowess, is ridiculous here. I mean, this is a a constitutional issue that is still being left open. I mean, it's not completely solved by the Supreme Court case. So you talk about mean-spirited. I think it's mean-spirited to go after her abilities as a lawyer.
0: Uh, Ross, let's get into the political side of this because I think Susan brings a good point about after all the legal sides, you have a political tool. Frankly, they're both sides, but I think especially effective one for uh, folks on uh, the conservative side of this thing. Does this become more of a
4: a political issue than it really is anything close to a legal issue. Wow. Well, it, you know, it's been a political issue for a long time. For me, even though I'm sort of a political junkie, I think the legal side of it is more interesting and more important. The Supreme Court, they did rule 5-4 to four in favor of Jack Phillips, but what they really ruled was that the first time the ruling came down, it was, it was motivated and influenced by anti-religious bias within the commission. They didn't really rule on the merits of the case in terms of whether Jack Phillips would be permitted. They didn't really reach that question, whether he would be permitted to refuse this service. One of the things that's kind of frustrating for me, and for the record, I'm a not very religious Jew who doesn't share any of Jack Phillips' views on, you know, same-sex whatever. But the First Amendment to the United States, indeed the founding of the United States before the Constitution, was about religious freedom. And, and I find it beyond obnoxious that anybody would think that Jack Phillips has to make a cake when there's a baker next door or a baker across the street. I think it should be an easy question, and I find it kind of shocking that courts in this country repeatedly rule the other way in favor of the aggrieved customer. One other quick point. It's possible that the reason the Supreme Court went the way they did the first time was because if they had tried to reach the, reach the merits of the issue that Justice Kennedy... Uh, might have sided with the liberals and ruled against Jack Phillips, and so they came with this other thing about the commission. Now that Kennedy's gone, when Kavanaugh's on the court, there's a decent chance that if they reach the merits that it will go in favor of Jack Phillips, where with Kennedy on the court it might not have. The governor's race gave
0: us some interesting headlines this week. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Jared Polis plans to launch a $3 million statewide ad blitz starting in October, and the Colorado Education Association officially endorsed Polis, whom they vilified with negative ads during the primary. Meanwhile, the Colorado Democratic Party came out criticizing Walker Stapleton for a future fundraiser event with Tom Tancredo. David, none of these headlines were terribly surprising. The CEA was certainly not going to back Stapleton, uh, and... Uh, Polis spending money during the campaign is not exactly uh, riveting, uh, surprising news. But I guess this is it's a setting up something a little bit more interesting as we get into election season, which I think would officially kick off after Labor Day. When you see what's developed this week, what do you think?
2: This is the world that, that Common Cause uh, has created when it successfully got a ballot measure passed. Uh, over a decade ago, Amendment, uh, of Article 20 of our state constitution, which is extremely restrictive campaign finance laws. You can't in the United States prevent somebody from spending their own money on their their own message, because as the Supreme Court has said, the, the rationale for campaign finance restrictions is to prevent corruption. And obviously Jared Polis spending these enormous amounts of money is not going to corrupt himself He's not going to say, well, I'm thinking of doing something that I agree with, but I'm not sure. Oh, wait, I gave myself so much money. I should definitely do that. I'm my own biggest supporter. Uh, Of course it's unfair, and it's especially unfair to the other candidates who are not so wealthy, because they have the limits on what they can raise are so low, it's very hard uh, for anybody to match somebody who can sell fund. Now, it's, it's the person who spends the most doesn't always win the election, but it sometimes helps. Jared won his first uh, race for uh, the State Board of Education by spending, I think, more than the gross national product uh, of, of some areas. Uh, and his opponents spent almost nothing, and Jared narrowly won. This won't be such a spending gap, but in a close race, it, it's absolutely possible his, his personal wealth could take him over the top.
0: Susan, from the various, uh, well, headlines, not necessarily surprising headlines, what's that to you most?
3: Uh, I think what is left unsaid here is Walker Stapleton, who's making so much hay about Jared Polis' money, which, by the way, is a completely, I mean, this is a completely valid topic to bring up, self-funding. But he's not calling for campaign finance reform. Um, You know, you would think someone who has such a problem with that would be calling for it. And actually, Jared is. So, yes, Jared is after he gets in and shuts the door behind him, right? But there's some hypocrisy in that. There's also some hypocrisy in the fact that Stapleton you know, his activities before he officially announced for governor when he was raising money and helping raise money for the super PAC that was basically created to elect him governor um, is noteworthy here. I mean, this is not a man whose engagement with campaign finance is uh, so pure that it it shouldn't be um, scrutinized. Um, Number two about the developments this week, this Tancredo fundraiser, It's stunning, frankly. I mean, I understand in some ways why Stapleton, especially when he had to get on the ballot at the um, state convention, um, wanted Tancredo to sort of uh, improve his, like, vast right-wing conspiracy credentials. But in the general election, campaigning with Tom Tancredo, in this era, when so much is happening and there is bipartisan outrage uh, uh, about the way the government is, tr- is treating immigrants, to be campaigning and raising money for your campaign with Tom Tancredo seems s- tone-deaf.
0: Ross, I was commiserating with a friend yesterday. In the good old days of Colorado politics, uh, you'd have a primary season where the candidates justifiably go to, towards their bases, kind of the, the, the ends of the spectrum, and then the general election, they start jogging towards the center. I'm going to be a moderate now, even though I was a different way in the primary. I see the good old days because that's not how it is nowadays. I think in, on both sides you have, at least in our gubernatorial race, folks who are perfectly happy on the wings of their uh, party and saying, one way or the other, you're going to have to vote this way or the other way. We're not going to run to the center. Uh, perhaps I'm just being cynical. What do you think?
4: Well, to me, I see these two stories, you know, J- Jared Polis and the CEA, and then Walker uh, doing a fundraiser with with Tom Tancredo is exactly the same story, right? Um, each side trying to unite the various wings of their party And there's nothing surprising about this at all. Um, I I don't think there's anything shocking uh, about Walker Stapleton doing anything with Tom Tancredo. Uh, Almost nobody is going to know that. And if the Democrats try to run ads saying, oh, Walker Stapleton did a fundraiser with Tancredo, uh, it's pretty difficult for Jared Polis, who people are going to be accusing of just trying to buy the election outright, To to complain about that. So, you know, Walker Stapleton is not necessarily trusted by the furthest right part of the Republican Party to be their cup of tea. He's trying to get their support and their money doing a thing with Tancredo. Jared is doing the same thing with the teachers. There's nothing surprising at all. And nobody will remember any of this when it comes time to cast their ballot. Patty, uh, as one of the originals of this table, you know how much
0: fun we've had with Tom Tancredo's table. Uh, He he brings fun wherever he goes, especially to a political story like this. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, and we will remember in November, we'll be talking about this too. Tom Tancredo not only brings fun and outrageousness, but he brought, he might bring 36% of the vote, which is what he got eight years ago when he was running as an independent. So... It's not just the p- voters in the center that these people are looking for. They want to be sure other people remember to vote. So if you can get the people on the far right or the people on the far left to be sure to vote for you, that's a win, too, because no one may get the people in the middle. No one may be able to stomach these candidates. So he's going to be pushing, and Tancredo, I mean, it's not like he hasn't already had the Tancredo taint. If people want to dislike Walker Stapleton for um, there are many reasons, but because of Tancredo, he's already got him. He's already got him from giving that nominating speech. So this is, he might just get more people who support him because they want to vote for 10 Grado.
0: You raise a great point about the voice the, of the, the squishy middle decides Colorado uh, elections, but if you have enough on either wing, you can get votes one way or the other. It's a good point. The Denver Post joined more than 200 other news organizations across the country on Thursday, decrying President Trump's attack on journalists. The Post states that there is no political filter or agenda behind its stories, just a desire to inform the public. The U.S. Senate unanimously passed a resolution the same day, stating the press is not the enemy of the people. As an editor of a great news site yourself, Susan, uh, your thoughts on what happened this week?
3: Yeah, it was... Something like 400 publications. The Colorado Independent, which I run, um, was among them. I did an editorial as well. What I think is um, it's, yes, journalists don't take political partisan uh, views um, and, and express them publicly, right? But what we do do is rally for the First Amendment and rally for freedom of the press. So for anyone to deride newspapers for um, standing up and speaking out for this most fundamental right at a time when we are under siege by a president who calls us sick and dangerous, enemies of the people, and at a time when the uh, economic forces and financial models of traditional newspapers are withering um, is insane. My, My column was not about Trump, it was about the ways that free press are being limited in Colorado, and I spoke about two instances that um, have happened at the Colorado Independent over the past couple months once one was I was handcuffed last month by a Denver uh, policeman for taking a photo of police doing their work on a public sidewalk on um, colfax and we've heard nothing about six weeks later from the city about what if anything it's planning to do about that or if even has a problem with that Um, number two i also spoke of the independence um, efforts right now to petition the u.s supreme court to hear the case of a um, documents fight we've been having over a death penalty case in colorado the state supreme court ruled in a stunning ruling uh, in june that there are no First Amendment rights. There's no presumptive public access to court documents in the state that makes Colorado the only state in the country that doesn't have that right.
0: Ross, are we headed towards a general public that will say the the press is unbiased or the fact that the press is only unbiased if I agree with them?
4: Wow. Well, so I, I think the press generally hasn't Uh, done their jobs tremendously well during the Trump presidency, but I also think Donald Trump has gone way too far talking about the press as the enemy of the people. He's wrong about that. Um, I thought Susan's uh, editorial was excellent, and I I don't think there's much more I need to say. The press is not the enemy of the people, and uh, I'll say one more thing. A A free press is much more important to the United States of America than any particular president. Patty, you are our other esteemed editor at the table. Uh, your thoughts on
0: this uh, nationwide effort?
1: I think uh, it's great, but let's remember, this is nothing new. Go back to the Watergate days. Go to, back to the prior restraint on the Pentagon Papers. Go back to John Mitchell, who was saying something I'm not even sure I can say on public television uh, regarding what would happen if the Washington Post published certain documents. So the, the press has always had to fight. And it should continue fighting, and in some ways having Trump's inane attacks by Twitter has energized the press in new ways. And let's hope it's energized the press to do the best job possible, in certain, cer- certainly in circumstances far worse than we had back in the early 70s financially.
2: David, wrap it up for us. Uh, Trump's rhetoric is despicable, and one of the things wrong with it is it is an overgeneralization. It's like when Elizabeth Warren says that all law enforcement is racist. There are some racist people in law enforcement, and there are some very bad, dishonest journalists in journalism. But it's wrong to say that everybody in that that field is wrong. The Post claiming that there's no political filter uh, is has about the same level of self-awareness of, or less than sponge, SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, there are some reporters, past and present at The Post, who are really good and solid. And there have been plenty of others. Uh there, including today, uh, who absolutely run their stories with a political filter. I wish the press were more vigilant about not only rhetoric against it, but actually actions. Here's the 43-page report from the Committee to Protect Journalists, which came out in 2013, detailing the Obama administration's unprecedented Actual attacks, not rhetoric, but real attacks on journalism, including illegal surveillance. Uh, They broke into Cheryl Atkinson's computer. She was the CBS reporter who exposed the Fast and Furious cover-up, and that cover-up continues.
0: Time for our very, very part of the show, Disgrace the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Uh,
1: It, unfortunately, didn't get a lot of coverage, but our Department of Energy Secretary, Rick Perry, was at NREL, uh, the Renewable Resource Lab, full of great scientists, and he gave a presentation that was incoherent, and invoked God a lot. So I guess God is who's going to take care of all our energy and environmental problems.
2: David. Representative Leslie Herod tweeted out in support of the winner of a Minnesota uh, Democratic primary for U.S. House, and uh, this is a candidate who has said that Israel is an apartheid state uh, that has uh, hypnotized uh, the world. So on Twitter, I asked Representative Herod if she agrees with this candidate's views on Israel. Um, uh, I hope she will respond to that at some point. Susan?
3: The State Department of Corrections. In fairness, they have a great program um, in which they use inmates to put out fires, and they really rely on them, and they do a fantastic job. The disgrace is that they pay them $6 a day to risk their lives to do so.
4: Russ. This relates a little to the previous topic of the media potentially doing their jobs better. When John Brennan's security clearance was polled by Donald Trump, whatever you think about that, too many journalists allowed the conversation to be about the First Amendment, as if John Brennan had a First Amendment right to a clearance or removing a clearance was a First Amendment violation. It isn't, and it's frustrating to see so many so-called journalists working so hard to make more Americans uh, ignorant. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty?
1: Chris Connors just became the head, officially, of Denver's Road Home. Really good worker, really good guy. Let's see if he can clear that up.
2: David. Uh, the Colorado Politics newspaper, which is uh, generally straightforward as coverage, did a great story on Kansas, Colorado, and Nebraska coming up with a pact to resolve a dispute over the, uh, the water in the Republican River, which it, it's led to the end of the Bonnie Reservoir in Colorado. But if Attorney General Kaufman and Governor Hickenlooper both supported it, it's probably uh, the right thing to do. Susan
3: speaking of water, the anglers of Colorado who are fantastic stewards of our rivers and uh, very nice to teach me how to fly fish, Um, so I'm grateful.
4: Hug an angler. Ross. Um, I'd like to say something nice about liberal Democratic activist Owen Perkins came on my show to talk about this Denver campaign finance measure that he supports and that I oppose, and we had an enjoyable, pleasant disagreement about politics. And uh, I wish more political discussion was like that these days. You wish there wasn't
0: such a unicorn to find. That's eh? yeah. a good point. A very good point. Before we go, I wanted to say something nice about our summer interns, John Blake and Jerry Farmer. Today's their last day, and they've been incredibly hopeful in putting together scripts and did a great job this summer. Uh, you probably saw them in the credits, so I uh, just wanted to wish them good luck in the fall, fellows. Hope to see you back when you can. That's all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. Take CIO wherever you go. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it, we are there. Check out our podcast on iTunes or Google Play. And for everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.